My name is Paul Toland. I'm a retired captain in the U.S. Navy. I served 30 years in the U.S. Navy Medical Service Corps, and I am the only living parent of Erica Toland, abducted in 2003, and today wrongfully retained by her grandmother in Japan. And this is my story. In this episode of Your Double Podcast, we are speaking to Captain Paul Tolan, whose daughter was previously abducted by his late Japanese wife. Following the demise of his ex-wife, his daughter is being kept away from him by his ex-wife's grandparents in Japan. If you just Google Paul Tolan's name with the right keywords like Japanese abduction and so on, you'll find tons of stories written about him because he has been struggling to reunite with his daughter for the last decade. After seeing the struggles that a parent goes through when their children get abducted to Japan, he decided to co-found Back Home, an organization with the goal of bringing back abducted children from Japan. This is a two-part series with Paul Tolan. And in part one, we talk a lot about the inception of Back Home and also a lot about what happened during the abduction of Paul Tolan's daughter. In part two, we talk about what the U.S. government can do better in making sure Japan follows the Hague Convention. In this episode, I'm also joined by Thomas Savikas, who will be the co-host for this particular series. If you want to know more about Thomas, you can listen to our previous two episodes. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hey, Paul. First of all, thank you for being a guest in this particular podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Now, with that said, can you give me a quick summary of what exactly happened with your situation and how your daughter got abducted to Japan? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my name's Paul Toland. Um, I'm a, I retired as a captain in the U.S. Navy Medical Service Corps. I did uh, serve 30 years in the Navy. And I'm the only living parent of uh, Erica Toland. And she was abducted in 2003. Uh, today, she's still wrongfully retained by her grandmother in Japan. Um, now, Erica was originally abducted by my now deceased wife, Etsuko, um, back in 2003. Uh, we were living in uh, Yokohama in a place called Nagishi Navy Family Housing. And we were married about seven years before Erica was born. Um, Etsuko was a naturalized U.S. citizen. And of course, Erica is also a U.S. citizen born to two U.S. citizen parents. Um, it, things really went bad after Erica. Erica was born, Etsuko sunk into severe postpartum depression. She, she had suffered from depression for many years, but it got really bad after, after Erica's birth. And in addition to that, Etsuko's mother lived alone in Japan, and we were getting ready to go back to the, to the States, leave, leave Japan in, in about a year, and, and Etsuko's mother did not want her to go back. Um, so things started going bad as a result of that, and I received a call from a neighbor in the summer of 2003 
asking if we were moving because there's a truck outside of our house, a moving truck. And when I got home, um, Etsuko, Erica, and, and our, most of our, our household stuff was all gone. Um, and then I sort of, this sort of started my journey into the surreal world of uh, Japan family law. Um, as you know, or as most, some people have heard, maybe some haven't, Japan is a haven for abduction. Uh, in the past 50 years, it's never returned, Japan has never returned any, any child, any abducted child to any country. So we, we've coined the term that it's literally a black hole for abduction from which no child ever returns. Um, I didn't know any of that at the time. I went to the local Navy legal service office looking for help. I mean, my daughter had disappeared into a foreign country and I needed help. Um, and any attorney with sort of a, just a rudimentary knowledge of the dysfunctional family law system in Japan would have, would have, um, would have told me to uh, uh, avoid entering the Japanese legal system. They would have said, go contact the State Department, go contact National Center for Missing Exploited Children, and go hire an attorney back in the U.S. But instead, this Navy lawyer didn't know what he was doing, and he just said, well, this is a private matter. Uh, go hire a Japanese attorney. And uh, that advice uh, sort of doomed me to years of unnecessary legal battles. Um, even I still tried to fight this case once I found out how, Japan, how bad Japan really was uh, with their legal system. I tried to fight the case from within the U.S. And Washington State, where, which was my home state at the time, ruled that they had jurisdiction. But because I entered the Japanese legal system, I ceded that jurisdiction. And they couldn't really help me. I sort of forfeit my rights. So you can see how much that bad advice from the Navy lawyer um, ended up hurting my case. <clears throat> so I had to try what I could within the Japanese system. And it was a bizarre process. I entered uh, mediation thinking it'd be something normal, but it wasn't. Um, it was bizarre. We never met. We never discussed issues. We were separate the entire time. We had sat in separate rooms with frosted glass windows, and we never discussed issues of substance. You know, I went in saying, I would like to see Erica on the weekends, and the judges and attorneys laughed at me. I asked if I could see her on her birthday, and I was told to mail the gifts to my wife's attorney. Um, and Christmas came, and I asked the same thing, if I could see her at Christmas, same thing, mail gifts to your wife's attorney. Uh, so after asking for access for a long time, I was finally granted visitation in a small courthouse playroom. And in that playroom was my the grandmother was in the playroom while my wife and her attorneys and my attorneys, they all watched us through one way glass while I was being videotaped. I was being videotaped to see if I would do good with the visitation. And I was, I was just shocked by that because this is the type of visitation a dangerous felon criminal would get in the United States. Yet here I was, I'm the victim of a crime. I'm a high-ranking, respected military officer. And I was basically subjected to this humiliating spectacle. Fortunately, visitation with Erica still went well. And, uh, and it was one of the only times I ever got to see her. My own Japanese attorney apologized for this. And I did bring a quote with me because I wanted to remember exactly. He, he wrote to me and said, please understand your case is not a piece of cake because of the racism and irrationalism in Japan. It might be something like defending the Taliban in the U.S. That's how he described it to me. Um, so I want to move ahead. In the summer of 2004, I transferred back to the U.S., spent the next three years in vain trying to maintain contact with Erica, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in attorney fees. 
And then in late 2007, uh, I received some tragic news that my wife, Etsuko, had committed suicide. Uh, she never really received the proper care for her depression. I wish she had. And I, 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 I was pretty devastated by her death, but I had renewed hope now to be able to see Erica. I mean, the Supreme Court in the U.S. has found that the rights of a parent supersede the rights of any third-party non-parent. I naively thought Japan would also respect the rights of a parent over a non-parent, uh, but I was wrong. Um, and to this day, Erica is still held by her grandmother in Japan. I have had absolutely no access to her since that time, since 2007. Uh, the State Department has repeatedly asked to visit Erica. Her abductor said no. Ministry of Foreign Affairs even got involved and asked to visit Erica, but the abductor said no. And that's the way the Japanese system is. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that, the actual Japanese system later, but it's a system with no enforcement mechanism. Compliance is completely voluntary. So all any government agency can say to me is, sorry, we tried. Um, nobody can offer any solutions because none exists. Um, I did go to see Erica uh, once or twice. I, I, and the way I did it is I flew to Japan, waited on a street corner to bring her birthday presents. And this was the only contact with dignity that I could have. Many other parents tried to do the same thing. Uh, if I tried to bring her home with me, I'd meet the same fate as Chris Savoy, who tried to rescue his children in 2009. He was blocked on the steps of the embassy, trying to get his kids into the embassy, even though he had full custody of them, because the State Department and the government cares more about preserving relations with Japan than with their own U.S. citizen children, protecting their own U.S. citizen children. So he was thrown into jail just for trying to bring his children home. And if I tried to do more than just meet her on a street corner, I could be subject to the same thing. So today, Eric is essentially held captive, separating, separated from her only living parent in a country that has never returned a child. Uh, her grandparent holds her, but the fact that it's a grandparent means she is not a parent. Um, under normal law in normal modern countries, she'd have no right to keep my child away from me. And yet, she's been allowed to keep her away from me for her entire childhood. Um, every day, I have no idea if she's sick or injured if she's safe, or if she's in danger. I have no idea if she goes to school or even what she looks like. I've not been offered a single photo of her, let alone a visit or a walk in the park or the chance to say happy birthday to her even once. And I'll just wrap up by saying that I, I never dreamed that serving my country overseas in one of our allied nations would result in the loss of my only child. Japan's supposedly an ally of the U.S., so I don't understand why the U.S. continues to tolerate this behavior from Japan. I mean, how can a nation we call an ally be guilty of such despicable human rights uh, violations and get away with it? And if you don't mind, I do want to divert just for a second about my own parents. And then, then I'll yeah, take for one. sure, for sure. Um, my own parents died, both of them, in 2013 without ever meeting uh, Erica. And uh, my, they, my mom especially really, really held on in the hope that she would meet her, but they never did. And that's, to me, the, the deepest and the real tragedy. Um, the trauma with Erica really affected uh, my parents deeply. Um, and um, I'll give you a story. My mom was in the hospital with dementia, and she had just fallen and broken her femur. So she was in the intensive care unit, and she'd slept deep into a dementia. And we were trying to get her out of it. So every day I'd show her pictures of all of her grandchildren. 
and I'd name them to her. I'd say, this is, this is Nathaniel. And she'd look and she'd say, Nathaniel. And then I'd show her Kristen and said, this is Kristen. And then she'd repeat the name Kristen. When I brought up the picture of Erica, I never had to say the name. As soon as she saw the picture of Erica, she said, that, Erica, Erica. And so that told me that, that you know, she was really, how, how deep that was for her. That, that she, that's the one, that the one grandchild she could remember the name. So, um, and the other thing, and then I'll, then I'll leave it. Um, I've heard a lot of people say throughout the years, why would you want to take Erica away from her home in Japan since she'd been in Japan for a while? And I've always said the same thing. Her home is not Japan. A child's home is not a place. It's not Japan. It's not even necessarily the United States. A child's home is with their parents and wherever that may be. So, so to me, no matter where I reside, her home is always with me, her only parent. Um, and that's, that's kind of my answer when somebody says that. Okay, so anyways, that's, that's a little bit about my background. I didn't go on too long. Right. And uh, I'm going to just jump straight into the questions about Japan and all that, because normally I will discuss what happened in the relationship with you and your wife. But it has been so long and it's been documented before this. So if people are interested, they can look it up. But let me ask you somewhat tougher question, okay? Why do you think Japan have such disregard for this issue or they are very nonchalant about the fact that a father lost the daughter or like, you know, a mother lost their daughter and stuff like that. Why Japan have this kind of behavior or this kind of mentality, according to you, as someone who's dealing with this since 2003? Well, I think it really comes down to um, a combination of two things. Uh, one is, one is um, divorce is, a, is still considered like a shameful topic and Japan doesn't deal with shameful topics. They push them aside. They hide them. Um, I'll give you another example. Mental health is a major issue in Japan because that's a shameful thing. So that to be handled in private. Don't and so because they say handle it in private, we as a society don't want to deal with it. Then they don't develop any good system within society to learn to deal with it. So they have a terrible mental health system. Likewise, they have a terrible family law system because it's always been said throughout Japan's history: deal with that in private. We don't, want it, we don't want that to come to light because it's a shameful thing. So if you're dealing with something in private within your family all the time, then there's no good, solid laws or legal system developed to handle something like that. Um, so it really originates. So it comes down to their, their, their terrible court system. There's, there's, like I said, no strong system of divorce or child custody. Whoever abducts a child wins. And that's because there's no enforcement within the system. If you have a system that more or less doesn't exist, then, then you find a strategy to get your child is to, to abduct a child. Um, a judge will never rule to reverse the status quo that appears to him before court. And let me explain that. If two parents come before the judge at the beginning of a case, divorce case, and one parent has physical custody at that time, that parent will always be awarded full custody because, and there's, I've never found an exception to this because the judge will not rule to reverse, reverse that situation because if he does, he can't enforce it. And if he can't enforce it, he loses face and he's embarrassed. And the entire system is, the entire system's weakness is pointed out. So he will twist 
and find ways within the law to maintain the status quo that is initially presented before him. And I have some, some interesting examples of that. Um, you know, a friend of mine, uh, Murray Wood, he was from Canada and his case was all adjudicated in Canada, a clear cut case of, of abduction and of the wife breaking the laws of Canada and bringing the child to the U S I mean, to the, to Japan, sorry, bringing the child to Japan. And you, if you've ever read his court rulings, the, the judge essentially said, yes, we understand because he, he went to Japan to fight it afterwards. And the judge said, yes, we understand that she broke the laws in Canada and we understand that that's wrong. However, the children are here and they're settled and they're doing well in Japan. And so that, that basically overrides whatever she did before. And that's kind of the way it is. You, they, 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 you, you will, the judge will find a way to, um, to enforce the status quo. The status quo was the mother now has the children in Japan. And even through something as, as weak as that argument, well, they're doing it in Japan, they're doing well. So that, that negates the fact that she committed a felony by bringing them here. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a, a, another one that's very interesting is, and I'm going to use a pseudonym here because he, he doesn't want his name out, uh, but a uh, uh, pseudonym is like Richard Corey, but that's not his real name. His real name's Mike, and I won't go beyond that, but he had two children, an older girl and a younger boy. So the girl was about 12, the boy was about eight. Uh, the mother abducted them. They were both living in Japan, but he was an American. Um, the girl escaped from her mother and ran back home to the dad. And then, then they went to court for the first time. And the judge did not rule to reverse anything. The status quo when they first went into court was the girl was with the dad, the boy was with the mom. The judge ruled to split up the family. The girl would go to the dad, the boy would go to the mom. It had nothing to do with who was Japanese and who wasn't. It had to do with the fact that that's the status quo. And he knows as a judge, he has no power to undo that. So... So it's, the, the cases are, it's, that's really at the root of it. Additionally, some other things about Japan and their family law system, there's no rules of evidence whatsoever. They simply will take an accusation without evidence and use that as an excuse to maintain the status quo. And this becomes a particular issue with domestic violence. So a lot of uh, the, the mothers know they can abduct a child then they can go to court and they can claim domestic violence and it'll never be investigated. There are no rules of evidence. She doesn't have to prove anything. And then the judge will award full custody to her based on that. Oh, domestic violence. Okay. The mother gets the child. And it's really a shame because there might be real domestic violence cases out there, but you'll never know what they are or where they are because every, every accusation is simply accepted and that provides a convenient reason for the judge to rule with the status quo. Um, I think the most egregious case of this I heard was a, uh, a good friend of mine, Paul Wong. He's an American citizen um, living in Japan. Um, his wife died from cancer while they were living in Japan. Never had an argument between the two of them their entire life. They, they, they loved each other deeply. He has a foundation set up in his wife's name. But then after that, he, he couldn't, um, he, he, 
he went to his, his work brought him to Hong Kong frequently. And so he had to go back and forth between Japan and Hong Kong. So he left his daughter with her parents, his wife's parents. And he was back and forth quite often working in Hong Kong, then coming back to Japan. Lo and behold, he came back to Japan one time and the parents wouldn't let him see his daughter, the grandparents. And once again, they, they claimed, even though there was no record ever anywhere of domestic violence, they claimed, oh, domestic violence, he, he, did, he, did, uh, he abused uh, the daughter or whatever. There's no proof, no evidence of any abuse to the daughter. But the Japanese court said, oh, well, then we'll have to give custody to the grandparents. And this was not a messy divorce or anything. This was somebody who loved his wife and they had a great relationship. And the grandparents realized that, oh, you know, he might be moving to Hong Kong. We don't want our granddaughter to go to Hong Kong. So we're going to claim domestic violence and keep this child in Japan. And that's exactly what happened. So, and and the other thing is, there's no visitation. There might be visitation in that spectacle of a courtroom being videotaped, like what I had, which is embarrassing and makes a child think, well, what's wrong with my parent? But you're not going to have regular, what we considered normal, unobstructed visitation in Japan, because since there's no enforcement of any kind, then what's to stop somebody who's visiting, who's taking their child for the weekend, visiting them, to re-abduct them? And then if they re-abduct them, the court can't undo that. So you could just have back and forth abductions all day long because you've got a system that has no, um, no ability to enforce itself and its own rulings. So therefore, it, it, you know, if, if I lived in a normal world, my wife might not have been afraid of giving me visitation. She might have said, oh, yeah, he can get visitation. And then if he withholds the kids, well, then I know he's going to get in trouble for it. So that's fine. So, so she has some assurances there. But but you don't have those assurances in Japan. So that's why there's no visitation because the, the, the abducting parents terrified to let the other parents see the child because they might be abducted and there's no recourse for that. Um, so, you know, there's no, there's no significant grassroots movement on this in Japan, even though it affects thousands of Japanese as well. It's a broken system. And so Japan only makes structural changes based on foreign pressure and being shamed internationally. But I'll, Talk more about that later. Um, and, and, and my last point, and then I'll, I'll turn it back to you. You know, if Japan cannot protect the fundamental bond between a parent and a child, like in my case, um, and the inherent rights of parents, then, then I think no American families are safe in Japan, including military families. If our military members and their families stationed in Japan can lose their children, just like that, some, even to non-parents uh, in violation of our constitutional protections, then the military should really rethink its policy of allowing family members to accompany um, their military members to Japan and live over there. Okay, that's 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 a little bit about Japan. Uh, you went, and, and I could field questions all day long on it because I really lit, not just studied it but lived through it. Well, uh, if I may, um, you mentioned that the Minister of Foreign Affairs official. Uh, was asking uh, for visitation. Was it uh, a U.S. Uh, official or was it uh, a Japanese official asking her to let you visit? Jap- Japanese. This was this was shortly after my wife died. Um, the State Department was having no no um, no was able to do anything. They had asked for visitation and were told no. So they actually did a they did arrange 
with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to request visitation and a status on my daughter. And, you know, some Japanese may feel enough pressure with that, with their own Ministry of Foreign Affairs asking them for this. But in the end, the grandmother just said no, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs couldn't do anything either. So it was the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs that, that tried to intervene. Well, that's surprising. Um, another another uh, interesting point was uh, uh, you mentioned that you were here in Japan um, all the time. Uh, how did the came that uh, wash? Uh, you said uh, was it Washington had the jurisdiction before you get embroiled with the Japanese legal system? So yes, so. We why, have, why, why is that so? Uh, is it because uh, of the military? some sort of arrangements because you're living in a base, something like that? It is. It is. Um, so when you are stationed overseas uh, as part of the military and you're ordered there by the U.S. government and you're, on, you're working in, in Japan, you, uh, we, you're, you're there under the umbrella of something they call the Status of Forces Agreement. For short, they call it the SOFA Agreement. And so the Status of Forces Agreement is different for every country that we have bases on overseas. And uh, there's a special status of force agreement between the U.S. and Japan. And in the agreement between the U.S. and Japan, it states that while in Japan, I maintain neither legal residence nor domicile in Japan. My legal residence and domicile is the state that I'm from back in the U.S. that, I'm, that I consider my, my uh, habitual residence state in the U.S., So because of that, I don't pay taxes in Japan. I pay taxes in the U.S. I don't have a post office box in Japan. I have a PO post office box on base, and it works just like the U.S. mail system. So there's a lot of unique access uh, aspects to that. Um, and so, um, yeah, so it's because I maintain neither legal residence nor domicile in Japan while stationed there, then my legal residence is not there. Therefore, I have protections in the U.S., potential protections. Um, Uh, for certain things, uh, and the military lawyer didn't seem aware of that and, and gave me poor advice, which led to uh, uh, years of needless battles in the court. I mean, even if I, the truth is, even if I had done the right thing, been given the right advice, and engaged the U.S. system first, uh, you know, it would have turned out like the 475 other cases of abducted children in the U.S. where, where yeah, sure, I would have had a, a, a full custody because she abducted the kids, and I would have had maybe even an Interpol notice on her and all of that, but it still wouldn't have facilitated the return of, of my daughter because nobody can get their child back once they're in Japan. Uh, I would like to clarify a little bit on this legality. So uh, your... Uh Your domicile and, and whatnot was uh, legal in the United States, but just because you happened to go and engage the Japanese legal system, how did that trump uh, all the all the other things you had in the U.S.? Why, why a simple thing, you know, just answering a Japanese court, out of a sudden trumps the whole lot of uh, your own country's status? It doesn't how, cut trump the whole thing. Doesn't trump the whole thing, but what it means is I engaged them first, so I chose that, and when I chose that, then I then I lose my rights in the U.S. So I I, I am not to be um, I, I I choose I chose a different legal system rather than the U.S. and and but I chose it based on the advice of a Navy lawyer, and that that advice was incorrect. 
So I'm not, so I, I did engage through the U.S. legal system, but I was never able to get the protections that I would have gotten if I'd gone there first. Um, when I, when I engage in the same, I have been told uh, by this country and by my country that uh, no matter where I engage, how I engage, in what capacity I engage, um, Japan has the child and that's that. So I, uh, I've been told from the get-go that I can engage anything, anywhere, in any capacity I would like. Japan will prevail because the child is here in Japan. So it was just uh, a little bit uh, interesting side of things that uh, somebody mentioned to you that just because you engage Japanese first, they, everything else gets trumped under, under Japanese law. Which, yeah, uh, what, what, what I wasn't able to get was a custody order. What I wasn't able to get was an Interpol notice because it, it's, 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 it's not adjudicated by U.S. courts. It was adjudicated by Japanese courts. So if it's adjudicated by Japanese court, obviously they're not going to give me full custody. But if I adjudicated in U.S. court, they would have because Erica was abducted and they see abduction as a as a crime where they don't in Japan. So it would have given me a stronger case legally. But you're right. Like I said, it still wouldn't have facilitated the return of of Erica. And it would have given me uh, probably much less legal bills in the long run because my case would have been much more clear cut and I wouldn't have been, you know, so anyways. Um, another, another important question uh, is um, uh, knowing, knowing all the agreements uh, U.S. has with Japan, uh, you know, mutual defense, friendship, so on and so forth. Um, have you ever tried to address your daughter as a missing uh not missing a ch- uh, your own child, but like uh, a little small U.S. citizen getting lost in, in Japanese land. Uh, had you tried to address her that? And if you did, uh, did anyone point it out that, no, no, you're not looking for your citizen. You're actually looking for your own daughter, child, which makes it, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, domestic case, like a family matter. And therefore, uh, the state shall, uh, sh- shall not get involved. So, so here's an interesting one. We had one opportunity to do that. Um, and it was during the Japanese tsunami uh, in 2011. And, you know, it really showed where our State Department stands on these issues. And let me, let me. Let me explain that to you, if you don't mind. I'm going to talk about the State Department for a minute because they're really at the crux of a lot of the problems here, at least for the U.S. They're supposed to be the organization we turn to for help when we got an abducted child. Um, and, but they are actually not our friends. They're more interested in preserving relations with other countries over actually protecting our children, which are, who are our most vulnerable citizens. And so this Japanese tsunami was a, was a good example of how abducted parents not only didn't get help from the State Department, we were treated as second-class citizens. And let me explain this. After the tsunami and earthquake uh, in 2011, the U.S. State Department set up a hotline, a 1-800-hotline that you could call, and they would go and try to find your children, where they are, if they're safe, and put you in contact with with your family members, I should say, any family members who are living in Japan. So you could call, they would research, they try to find your family members, try to put you in contract, 
contact with them, let you know where they are and if they're safe or not. So we uh, parents said, oh, that's a that's a that's a good way for us to get to find the status of our children because we haven't been able to until now. So we started calling that hotline, that 1-800 hotline to find out where our children are to get put in touch with our children. A couple of days later, the State Department realized that what we were doing. And they said, basically, they sent us an email saying, oh, to all the parents of abducted children, to, to all of us, they said, this line is not for you. You're not allowed to use it. You have to go. Your procedures are different. You go through us and then we'll find your children and we'll let you know if they're safe or not. But we can't let you know where they are and we can't put you in touch with them. So all U.S. citizens, except the parents who have been victims of this of this felony crime of child abduction, all other ones had one standard and we were subject to a different standard. We were not put in touch with our children. We were not told where our children were. We were only told, uh, yes, we located them. They're safe, but we can't tell you anything more. So we were treated like second class citizens. And that is um, really, that encapsulates the State Department better than any example I could give of, of this. It was, it was absolutely despicable behavior. Um, and they have done that again and again. They have, uh, you know, we even had a, uh, an assistant secretary of state for consular affairs, uh, 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 that said, and I won't name her name, but she said, well, the good point is at least they're with their mommies. And that just shows how they just don't take this issue seriously. I mean, you know, in, in the U S you got a child abducted, um, and, and, you know, you might have a, uh, um, an abductions go up on billboards everywhere. And uh, I forget what they call it. Uh, some kind of a, um, Amber a alert. notice that goes, out. what is it? Amber alert. Amber alert. Thank you. An Amber alert that goes out and it's major federal crime. And the person who's caught is ends up being arrested unless they go across us lines and they go into another country. Then it becomes, then it gets pushed down to the, um, State Department to a section of the State Department called the uh, Office of Children's Issues, which is under the Consular Affairs Division. And um, the Consular Affairs Division office does, does things like visas, passports, things like that. They're, they're, they do paperwork. And they're also tasked with felony child abductions. It, do, it doesn't fit there. They, they are a section that does nothing but paperwork, except when it comes to felony child abductions. Um, really, I mean, we'd be much better served uh, for these things being handled uh, by, the, by, the, by, the, by the Justice Department. I get into more about that later. But so there, there's, a, there's a lot to the State Department that just makes my head spin. We had one parent whose child was a teenager and tried to escape Japan and made it to the, to the embassy. And the embassy sent her back to the mother. She was trying to escape and the embassy sent her back to the mother. And then we made a big stink about it. And then she tried to escape a second time. And then finally, the second time they facilitated the return of her to the U.S. But then an abducted child makes their way to the embassy, escaping their abductor. And the embassy sends them back to the, uh, actually it was a consulate. It was down, I think it was in Osaka. The consulate sent her back to the abductor. And that's what we're facing when we deal with the State Department. I mean, our children 
are just not important enough for them to care about it. Um, I mean, if, if our children were important, they could take steps that would resolve this in a year. If they were, if the U S was willing to expend any political capital on it, because they have an enormous amount of political capital to expend as the most powerful nation in the world. Um, uh, I saw it happen in the nineties when, uh, President Clinton made a specific trip to Germany just to just to address child abduction, but he did it because the wife of the British ambassador was friends with Hillary Clinton. So somebody important and her her child had been abducted by her ex husband. So somebody important got abducted, and it got and it got involvement at the presidential level, and it, and and that country changed their ways, or at least changed some of their laws based on that, but. But I guess our children are just not important enough. Uh, for most people, it is viable to say that. But you are somebody that have served the United States, right? You are somebody who have helped the country to do whatever mission that they gave you, right? And it's kind of crazy that you are saying that you are getting treated as a second-class citizen. How does that make you feel? Like, uh, you know, all the loyalty and time and uh, energy and youth and all that that you've given to the United States, it's not being... Uh, given back to you in time. Of well, it makes me feel, you know, disappointed in our government uh, that that they just, you know, it's, I shouldn't get special treatment. Uh, I mean, everybody should get the same treatment. We should all, they should care about their U.S. citizens first and foremost. Um, we need engagement at the presidential level. I mean, in, in France, President Macron has engaged multiple times with this. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau from Canada has engaged Japanese directly. Um, the Italian Prime Minister has engaged Japan on this issue, but no American president in my time, has ever engaged publicly on this issue. Some have privately, uh, but none have ever publicly. And, uh, uh, and you know, just last month, I was up in Congress for the uh, Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission meeting hearing, and um, that commission invited the State Department. It was a hearing on child abduction, international parental child abduction. They asked State Department to send some representatives, and they didn't even show up. They were a no-show. So that sends a loud and clear message to Japan when that happens, that Japan doesn't have anything to worry about because the State Department doesn't care about it and won't take any actions on it. So, and you know, I'll tell you when, you, when they do take actions those few times, it, it moves Japan because Japan moves through foreign pressure. We, we um, and I'll talk about this later when I'm talking about uh, our group called Bring Abducted Children Home, but we had a lot of meetings in the past with the officials from the state department. And we really, uh, back in 2011, 12, we really pushed hard. And, and I think we kind of shamed, uh, the assistant secretary, uh, Kurt Campbell, who was the uh, assistant secretary for East Asia and Pacific affairs. We, we told him all this, that our children are just not important enough. And he actually went to Japan. He, he felt, he said he felt he didn't do enough for us. And he went to Japan and he held a press conference about nothing but international child abduction in Japan. And it made big headlines in Japan and it pushed Japan really hard. And shortly after they ended up signing the Hague Convention. Uh, just, a, just a year and a half later, they signed the Hague Convention. So it, you know, it really was the start of that movement. But, but then the U.S. eased the pressure again. And then Japan, yeah, they signed the Hague Convention, but they haven't been compliant with it. And we talk about that more later with the, with the, uh, about, the Hague, about the Hague Convention and how ineffective that is. But Anyway, so that's, yeah, that's kind of a little discussion on the State Department. And I know I got a little off track there, but they, they are an integral, important part of this whole process. 
you mentioned before that the State Department uh, offered you a different, some sort of, let's call it, helpline to, to locate abducted children after tsunami had happened. Did they bother to offer you that very same helpline or whatever else helpline before the tsunami and uh, earthquake happened? So it wasn't a separate helpline. It was it was there was a there was a helpline that was set up for all U.S. citizens to locate any family members in Japan who might be affected by the tsunami. Um, what they did was said, "No, don't don't go don't go through that. Don't don't call that. You can't call that number. And if you did call that number, they had your name on a list. And they'd say, "No, you can't call this number." But what they said instead was, "Contact your case officer at the Office of Children's Issues, and that person will help you." And so, no, they they to that point. Um, uh, yes, to that point, we uh, there's there's a lot of us that did know that the State Department did say, yeah, your child's safe. They they were able to tell us that before and after the tsunami. But they're but so they, basically the key to that was they didn't want us to know where our children were, and they didn't want us to know uh, or to be to have any contact with them. They just wanted to be able to say we found them, they're safe, um, and so it was really a result of the tsunami. And yes, before that. Uh, they didn't always even tell us that much before the tsunami. What, what do you think? What do you think was the reason that uh, they wouldn't like you to know such details where we are, how we are, except sure. saying that we're, we're just breeding? Sure, uh, that's it. That's a good question. Um, I think some of that comes back to that the tsunami was only a year and a half, not even a year and a half after the about a year and a half after the Savoy case, and the Savoy case. Uh, was a big embarrassment to the U.S. State Department and the U.S. government because it really showed how little they could uh, uh, do um, and how how ineffective they were, and so they were afraid, and it caused an international incident. It was it was all over the news for many many days, uh, major headlines and all the major networks, and they were afraid that um, um, there could be a repeat of that. If we now knew where our children are and we've got legal orders for our children then we could go back and try to recover them. And they didn't want that. They didn't want another international incident. They would, they would rather us not know where our children are than, than, than create the risk of another international incident. And for those who, who um, don't know about Chris Savoy, I can tell you a little bit about his case because it, it was a pivotal case. And it was a case that really led to the, eventually led to the creation of our, our organization, Bring Abducted Children Home. Um, the issue of international child abduction in Japan was under the radar for many years, and uh, it was thrust into the international media spotlight in the later half of 2009 uh, with the arrest and wrongful imprisonment of Chris Savoy. He went to Japan. He knew a lot about Japan. He spoke Japanese. He was actually a naturalized Japanese citizen. He had tons of knowledge about Japan in advance. So he knew that there was no way through the legal system, through the Japanese legal system, to get his children recovered. And he would end up like all of the other hundreds of parents before him uh, with no access to his children. So he, as soon as his children were abducted, he found out where they were. He flew over there with the only person with legal custody was him. He had legal custody in the U.S. His wife had not established any kind of custody in Japan. He, and he uh, picked up his kids at school and went to the U.S. Embassy with them to try to get them their passports so they could get back to the U.S. and he was arrested on the steps of the U.S. Embassy and uh, sorry, the consulate in Fukuoka, U.S. consulate, and he was um, thrown into jail and held without charges for 18 days. 
like I said, that gathered a lot of national media attention. Uh, so Japan was finally pressured to release him without charges. But that case embarrassed the U.S., caused a big media splash of, of this terrible issue of international child abduction to Japan, an issue that government would rather, U.S. government would try to, rather try to ignore. Um, and so they didn't, they didn't want to repeat of that by telling us where our children were after the tsunami. Uh, can you please clarify uh, if he was uh, actually arrested inside the consulate grounds or, or just before, before the consulate grounds? Literally on the steps going up into the consulate. So now he had not entered the door and not gone through the door. He had been assured by State Department officials ahead of time that they would open the door for him. And then when he got there, they didn't open the door. And then, then the, so he couldn't get in. So his wife had time to call the police and the police arrested him right there in front of the consulate. But, uh, you, you know, um, U.S. consulates, uh, they're always like heavily, heavily protected wherever you go, even in this safe country. Uh, so we call it, um, we usually have like, uh, you know, fences and everything. So he was literally inside the consulate, uh, so to say grounds, but not in the building. Is, is that correct? To say? I, I don't, I don't exactly know the layout of the consulate in Fukuoka. All I know is that they had prearranged that as soon as he got there with his kids, they would open the door for him. And then when he got there, uh, one of the officials in the, in the consulate went back on the word and said, don't open the door for him. Don't let him in. And then he was, then the police showed up and he was arrested. So, so we, we, we literally sold their own citizen back to the Japanese. Yes. Even though he was the only one that had any custody, any legal custody whatsoever of his children. As far as I, I know, uh, they should not allow Japanese police in the consulate grounds. And I don't think he was in the consulate grounds. I think he was trying to get into the consulate. Like I said, I, I think that's a, we could spin around on this forever. And even if you went today, it might look different than it looked in 2009. So I, I don't know. I just know that they didn't let him in. And he, so he was outside, not inside and got arrested by them. Because I tried, I tried exactly the same. And, and he was the case study of mine. And I asked for uh, my uh, embassy to help. And um, my embassy said, well, we're going to help you until uh, 5 p.m. Comes 5 p.m., we open the door and we you either walk away yourself or we, we kick you out. Or if we can't do that, we will invite the Japanese police inside and they will walk you out. So well, one of the three. And I was like, I, I don't even understand where, where our taxes goes. But even in a case like this, you say we, we can't protect you. So well, why the embassy? You know, the embassy literally should uh, protect you 24-7 until you're sound and safe, not, not until business hours runs out of the clock. Yeah, well, like I said, their interest, their interest was with protecting relations with Japan over our own U.S. citizen children. So it's, it's been consi- that's been very consistent of the State Department. Yeah, I absolutely agree. This is a common thread between all the parents that I've spoken to so far when it comes to Japan and the embassies there. They tend to like, you know, maintain a diplomatic relationship with Japanese government. And because of that, they don't do much to help their own citizens who are currently in Japan and need help. Now, with that said, right, let's talk about back home. I know that through your struggles, you started back home. Can you explain a little bit about the inception of back home? 
what's the motivation behind you and the others who joined together to start back home and what have you guys been up to for the last decade or so 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 okay uh bring up the children home I, as i mentioned just a minute ago started uh in 2000 right after the uh the incident with chris savoy in 2000 uh, 2009 2010 um chris after he was released from prison um said that uh he he came he came uh he and i got in touch after that after he was released from prison and uh you know we had we had the international media spotlight at that point and we had a lot of attention at that point we had hearings on congress and everything so upon his release from prison he and i got together and realized we needed to formally form an organization that could capture the energy of this movement we wanted a a formal organization that could capture the energy and push the us government and the japanese government to change because we had a lot of energy at that time uh beginning of 2010 we we came up with a name for it it was called bring abducted children home and uh if you abbreviate the first three letters that's b a c uh back home so we called it back home and some people say well if you call it back home where's the k cuz back has a k in it and we're like well the k stands for our kids and our kids are missing just like the letter k is missing so so it's back home without a k uh bring up the children home or back home um and uh some of our earliest actions we took first we found at all the parents that were involved this through a network we networked them together we united them so we had one large group of parents probably up to probably had up to 50 to 75 maybe even close to 100 parents on a on an email group all together now communicating with each other through this network and Uh, when we first formed one of the first things we did is we 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 went to congress and we roamed the halls of congress and we got some congress people who were very interested in working with us um uh on issues one of them who we've been working with even before that was congressman uh Chris Smith uh, i don't know if you're familiar with him but he is one of the most involved people in this issue he he is a he has done a ton to help us um, in fact the first time we ever met him we went to his office and we met with his chief of staff and then the phone rang in the chief of staff's office and she said okay i'll bring him in and we went right in and met with him which is which is rare that you get to meet with a congressman the first time you go to him and that night we were going to be going over to the in front of the japanese embassy to celebrate one of the children's birthdays and light a birthday cake with candles in front of the japanese embassy and he actually showed up that night that evening so I mean that's the first day we met him. So he's always been instrumental in this and in all legislation and been involved very much with the with our back home organization. Uh but I I did want to say that he was probably the most important person working with us. So so one of the first things we did um was we uh Chris and I uh and other members of back home also got another congressman's office involved named Jim Moran from uh, he's a democrat from my district in Virginia where I was living at the time. So between Congressman Smith who was a Republican and Congressman Moran who was a Democrat, we were able to get um support on both sides of the political aisle and we um Chris and I actually started drafting a house resolution to condemn Japan and we turned this draft into them and made it a reality uh in 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 that um, we worked with them all the way through preparing the first draft preparing future drafts and going back and forth with their staffers to the point that by September 2010 this made it to the house of representatives and it was a house resolution 
which um, condemned Japan for uh, for child abduction. And it really spelled out all the issues with Japan. And it was very, very blatant. And it passed uh, 416 to 1. So it was very overwhelmingly bipartisan. And, um, and I also worked with Congressman Smith's office at that time to add an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act of 2010, which uh, tried to get an accurate accounting of military parents worldwide who were affected by international child abduction in general. Um, so we had a few successes, big successes in that first year between the House Resolution and the National Defense Authorization Act Amendment. So by the next year, we decided to officially incorporate. We completed that in June 2011. Um, and uh, the original organization officers were myself and a guy named Doug Berg and another guy named Randy Collins. And then shortly thereafter, uh, we added uh, Jeffrey Morehouse to the, uh, uh, to the roles as an officer as well within the organization. He had been involved with this back to the early days of 2010 when he first became involved. Um, and he's really been integral to the success of the organization uh, and has really led a lot of the organization's efforts for the past seven years. He's been a very, very strong proponent of, of, of this and, and probably done, uh, I will say, more work than any of us, including myself. Um, but during the year 2011, the issue gained enough attention that we facilitated meetings, as I mentioned earlier, that were attended by many parents. These meetings were, had State Department officials. They had parents. They had um, uh, uh, members from the, um, from the uh, uh, FBI, even, and from the Justice Department. And so this, these were real uh, big, high-level meetings. And um, we had very frank discussions with State Department officials on this. And like I said, it even led to Assistant Secretary Kurt Campbell holding a press conference in Japan in 2012 about Japanese child abduction and, and, and you know, really putting pressure on Japan, which, which led to them signing the Hague Convention in 2014. And in 2014, back home was again instrumental in that. We held, once they signed the Hague Convention, we held the first major event in 2014 on the day that the convention went into effect. What we did was we took about 30 to 40 pre-existing cases of abduction. These individuals, including myself, were not eligible for a return under the Hague, we, but we were eligible for uh, what they call a Hague access application to, to petition for access um, under the Hague to your child. And we provided uh, an attorney who provided pro bono services for all of them. And we filed and delivered those Hague access applications in a very major public manner. I mean, CNN was there filming it and many other organizations were reporting on it. And we did a march to the State Department that day to, to present these and of course, in the end, Japan didn't honor any of them at all. None of us really ended up with access to our children. I talk about I talk more about that later. But um, and then we were instrumental to in helping pass the Goldman Act, the, uh, the Sean and David Goldman International Child Abduction Prevention Return Act, and that act outlined eight steps the administration should take. Uh, each step increasing its severity when a country refuses to cooperate in resolving overseas abductions, and. Um, Right now, at this point, you know, Japan has, under the Goldman Act, you know, it, it works its way all the way up to punitive measures. And I think only punitive measures at this point would work with Japan. Um, and at the time, Congressman Smith said, this was a first, this bill, the Goldman Act, was a first step. And then he would progressively work to strengthen the bill through future iterations, as he had done with uh, other legislation in the past, like child trafficking legislation, where he passed Passed it once, 
but then he closed loopholes by passing a second version and then so on and so forth. And he was going to try to do the same with us. <laughs> so back home is working with him right now on that. Now, legislation and congressional stuff is not all we do. We do parent support and education. Uh, many parents who have children abducted to Japan are referred to us. And this is, this is, uh, gets to the heart of what you were asking about. And I was going to give you an example. There's a case of a gentleman named Jason Nitz, a young Air Force, a uh, very young Air Force uh, member. And, and he reached out to us and he actually did everything right. And to this day, he still has his children. And what happened was, um, the one he had hired a private investigator, which costs money. I know, but he hired this private investigator who was able to find that his wife had opened up a number of accounts in Japan and was moving money into those accounts. Additionally, he reached out to back home and we brought in many things. I went to testify in court in his divorce trial. And we brought in many things to that court trial, all the articles about Japan, all the information about Japan, and especially the House Resolution 1326 that we had helped to pass that condemned Japan. And that's a really official document. And that made a big difference with the judge. And so between the, the stuff he found through his private investigator and all of the information about Japan being a haven for child abduction, the judge ruled that his wife was um, a, a flight threat. And so she only received supervised visitation in the U.S. and he was given custody. And he maintained that. And to this day, he still has his children. And that was, the case was 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, or about 10 years ago. So, so um, you can do everything right, but it takes a lot to really protect yourself. And even then you might get the wrong judge. Who's like the Savoy case. The judge said, well, yeah, I understand Japan's really bad, but we're going to, you know, we can't, we can't just give her supervised visitation. We'll, we'll give her unsupervised visitation and then boom, she disappears. So um, we're also pushing for change in terminology on many things. You know, uh, we, we just, some of the terminology that's used, we just don't agree with it in, in regard to child abduction. Uh, one of the things is uh, you hear the term left behind parents again and again, and we never use that term. We are the victims of a federal felony crime. And so it, calling us left behind parents, it's like calling a rape victim uh, an unwilling romantic partner. You know, it is not, we are not left behind parents. We are victims of a felony crime and that's what we are. And so we can't use these soft terms that the State Department wants us to use because they want to downplay the seriousness of this. So that's one thing. Another thing is, um, you know, we're trying to change, we're working on, and this is going to be up to with legislation, we're trying to change how the state, State Department, everything that, that they have one category for cases and it's resolved, but they don't tell you how it was resolved. And we don't even consider many of them resolved. My case is considered resolved. You know why? Because they failed for 18 years and my child aged out. That's a failed case. That is not a resolved case. A res resolved case can have many subcategories. And so we're working uh, through legislation to define the actual categories of, of what should be considered what. I mean, yeah, a resolved through a return. That's a resolved case. Uh, a resolved through an amicable agreement with the parents. Okay, that's a resolved case. 
resolve through aging out through 18 years of failure. No, that's not resolve. That's a failure. And so it needs, we need to really define that so state can't get around and tiptoe around this because they showed some chart at the last meeting I was at, the iStand meeting this year, showing how many resolved cases they had with Japan and making Japan look very good. And I went to the guy afterwards. I said, is my case in there? He said, probably. So I helped make Japan look good because the State Department or and made the State Department look good because my case, they failed on my case for 18 years and never returned my child. So that, we, we've got to change that as well. Go ahead. You were going to say something, Thomas. So, so, so that, uh, that would be probably the same uh, analogy uh, like the rape uh, victim being unwilling participant or failed participant in, in love affair. So uh, this uh, dismal uh, working on your case will make Japan uh, looking good just because your child aged and, and uh, it resolved itself, meaning uh, probably a murder case can resolve itself if a murderer just simply dies before uh, getting apprehended. Will, yeah. will, will that be fair enough to say? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's fine. I mean, it's, it's, it's just not... Resolved is just not the proper terminology for all of the cases. For some of them, they are. We have to find the proper terminologies that the State Department would have to report using that terminology and not just using this catch-all uh, resolved for everything, even the total failures. Uh, well, I would, like to, I would like to mention one thing for our listeners. Uh, that, uh, as uh, Paul, you just mentioned that there was a guy who went and did everything by the book and by let's call it almost by divine intervention, uh, he got lucky and he still has the children with him. Uh, one of our uh, uh, podcast uh, speakers were in similar situation in U.S. divorcing a Japanese husband, and um, uh, she provided ample amount of evidence and even expert witnesses and whatnot, and documentation about Japan being a notorious when it comes to children coming in and never getting out of Japan. And yet the judge simply used U.S. logic by, by saying, well, you know what, if this Japanese citizen will do exactly that, he will lose any and all custody he has at the moment without realizing that if that Japanese will do what he's planning to do, that U.S. Uh, jurisdiction will have no recourse whatsoever to reach anybody at any level while, they're an, uh, while they are in Japan. And indeed, they, they let the father to leave uh, the U.S. Uh, with two children to Japan. And as you, already one, as, as you already know, one too many times, these children just completely failed to be returned or come back to to U.S. without uh, extensive legal battles. You bring up a great point. Um, so the case I refer to was before Japan signed the Hague, right? So, so a judge at that point could be convinced that, oh, well, they're not a Hague signatory, so these children can truly disappear into that country. What's happening now is different. Japan is a signatory to the Hague, but they haven't been compliant with the Hague. But the State Department is unwilling to call them out on that. They're unwilling to say, 
you are every year, year after year, you're non-compliant with the Hague. You're, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. So therefore, a judge is going to say, well, they're a Hague signatory, and I don't see any major reports from the State Department saying that they're not acting in good faith. So therefore, I'll let the children go. So that's a real danger to what the State Department's doing. So let me, let me talk a little bit about the Hague, if I might, because it's, it's an important thing. With Japan, there have been no significant improvements since they signed the Hague in 2014. Um, they, they ignored the existing cases that became that were there before they signed the Hague. They're just letting all of our cases age out. And the, and the State Department is perfectly fine with that. They're not really pushing back on that at all. Age out, that's good. That, that, that's less problems for them as well. Um, and so Japan's strategy on this since 2014 is just, has always been in coordination with the U.S. When Japan first signed it, the Hague, then our State Department told us, well, let's give them some time to try to implement it and try to figure out how they want to implement it. And then we gave them time and nothing happened. But then they got a new prime minister. And then the State Department says, well, let's, they got a new prime minister. So now we're, we're negotiating with the new prime minister. So let's give them some time. And then guess what happens? Uh, got a, we got a new president here in the U.S. and a whole new administration. So that new administration says, well, we've just got a new president, new administration. So let's give us some time to get our feet wet on this. And then, a new, then all of a sudden, you got a new prime minister again in Japan. Well, let's give us some time to get adapted to this new prime minister. And so it goes on and on. Like a like a never ending cycle, new prime minister, new president, new prime minister, new president. The State Department is never willing to hold Japan accountable. Um, and it, even you know, in 2018, a senior embassy of Japan official um, told some back home officials, "Your access to your children depends on um, on nothing more than the than the wishes of the mother and the child's wishes." So basically. Japan ceded all control to the kidnapping parent, and they abdicated their responsibility to provide access to and return our children. Um, and not only that, but the Hague Convention is not good enough. We need involvement from the Justice Department. We really do. One of the things we asked for back in these 2011, 2012 meetings, um, the Justice Department was there at all the meetings, and we said, we would like you to test out an extradition case. Uh, and the just, Justice Department copped out with this excuse that, well, we can only do extradition if there's dual criminality, which means the crime is a crime in both countries. And since parental kidnapping is not a crime in Japan, it doesn't meet the standard of dual criminality. So we can't, we can't, uh, we can't ask for an extradition. But recently there was a, there's a case of a, of, of a, a gentleman named Carlos Gosen. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. He was a French national and former CEO and chairman of Nissan. And he was jailed in Japan on allegations having to do with misuse of company assets and misappropriation of Nissan funds. Yeah, and he was jailed. And then he escaped from jail and fled the country. And two American citizens helped him with this escape, uh, former U.S. Green Beret, Michael Taylor, and his son, Peter Taylor. And Japan asked for them to be extradited to Japan, even though the charges that they asked them to be extradited on were only criminal charges in the U.S. They didn't have similar charges in Japan. So there was no dual criminality. But yet the U.S. extradited both men to Japan. So that just tells me that that whole dual criminality thing was a bunch of, give me, 
uh, you can don't bleep it because I won't say the word, but a bunch of BS that the, <laughs> that the, that the, that the, the, um, that the justice department was feeding us because they extradited people from here when there was no to Japan, when there was no dual criminality, but they won't even ask for an extradition from Japan because they say there's no dual criminality. And it's just, it's just a shame that the bottom line is with the Hague in Japan, nothing has changed. The court system in Japan today is no different than it was 15 years ago. The courts still have no mechanism of enforcement. They, the courts drag out cases for many months to run off the clock, and the judges simply work to find a way to maintain the status quo. It's this Hague, signing the Hague was simply a smokescreen uh, devised to temporarily relieve any international pressure on Japan. And because their court system is such that they can never be compliant with the Hague, means that the Hague is just a waste of time. That foreign pressure and pressure in the media and pressure from Congress and hopefully pressure from the State Department is the only solution. This is the end of the first part of a two-part series with Paul Tolan. In the coming part, which is the second part, we will talk in depth about what the U.S. government should be doing to help this situation and how are they failing the parents and the children who are stuck in this situation. And of course, we will talk about everything else like the United Nations, what the media can do and so on. Now, I would like to remind everyone that our goal here is to share knowledge with you guys and show that you're not alone in this. With that said, if you need specific legal advice, please get your own independent advice from a qualified legal practitioner. If you're a minor or if you happen to have difficulties in understanding certain parts within this episode, please approach a responsible adult or someone knowledgeable in these topics and ask them for clarifications. We have done our best to make sure that it doesn't offend anyone And if you have further questions or comments or feedback regarding Find My Parent or this interview, you can always email me at sk at findmyparent.org. If you're someone who got separated from your own parent and would like to find your parent again, please go to findmyparent.org and fill out your details. With the help of our smart algorithms and matching technology, we hope to help you find your alienated parent again. If you're part of an NGO or even a private company passionate about this topic, please reach out through the contact us page in findmyparent.org. And we hope to work together with you. All right, folks, that's it for this week. Speak to you next week. Take care till then. Yeah, can be just like me. You're a double, oh, you have.